0: Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I just pray that you would open our minds and hearts, that you would give us understanding of your creation around us, because, Lord, your thoughts for us are thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give us a future and a hope, especially in our agricultural endeavors, because you put man in the first garden, Lord, and you desire for us to be examples to those around us. And, Lord, you desire for us to have success, and you've made laws in nature that work in particular ways so that we can have dependable results. Results if we're willing to follow. And I just pray that in this introduction you'd give me words to speak that they might uh, find a place in each one's mind and they might be able to practically know where to start, at least, Lord, to go forward in this adventure. In your name we ask, amen. Okay, so, first question. What does Harvard University have in common with soils, or how are soils like Harvard University? Okay, so any, any thoughts here? I, I want to hear some thoughts. I know it's kind of a, it's, a, it's an interesting parallel, but this is a good conceptual comparison. So, any ideas? Complex. Complex. <laughs> <laughs> yes, go ahead. Sorry? Furtle. Fertile ground, okay. Okay, some people would say opposite to fertile in some ways. But yeah, okay, fair, fair enough. Yes? Always learning. Always learning. These are good, good comparisons. Yes, sir? Hard to get into. Hard to get into. Yeah, there are, there are some comparisons there. Hopefully we can break that a bit. Way in the back there. Two kinds of education. Two kinds of education, okay. Anyone else? We'll take... Sorry? It's a school. Okay, very good. Well, uh, my comparison was a little bit different than those. Uh, my comparison here is endowments. Okay, um, Harvard is ha- is it's the number it's the large has the largest endowment in the U.S. Probably in the world. Um, they have an endowment of 38 billion dollars for Harvard University. And it's like wow, what could you do with that type of money? Um, but it's true. This is their endowment uh, currently for the university. And I believe they, from this endowment, they got, what was it, Dad, 1.6 billion in yearly revenue from that endowment. So how an endowment works is, Uh, Basically, endowments supply money by working off the interest of the endowment. So you have a lot of money and you said, hey, I'm going to put it in the bank. And the bank says, sure, put it in our bank. We'll give you interest on it. And then obviously that interest compounds over time. And so an endowment takes the portion, or most at least, take that portion of that interest that's earned, and they don't touch the money that's in the bank. They just take the interest and they use that to fund what's going on. In many ways, soils are very similar. Soils work very much the same way. Each element in the soil, and we're going to go over the elements in the soil, is a certain size endowment to make sure that there is enough money or nutrients actually being supplied. So let me go to my next slide here so I make sure I don't repeat myself. Okay, so these we're going to talk uh, just just a bit of an outline. This is kind of what we're going to try to cover today. Uh, The big three plus one, which I'm referencing elements here. The middle three, the five dwarfs, And we're going to go over taking a good soil sample. So, so how this kind of works is is that think of of an endowment, right? You have a large amount of money that, by Interest right is yielding a a smaller amount of money that you use to fund things right and that's the same thing in the soil So for instance, let me give an example like phosphorus, okay? If you take phosphorus the ideal levels of phosphorus in the soil with the test that I'm recommending are 220 to 330 pounds of phosphorus in the soil Okay now that amount that you see in the soil, the plant is not accessing that entire amount. The plant might be accessing five pounds to the acre in the soil solution around all the little soil particles. But you have to have that much phosphorus in the soil to make sure that much trickles down so that the plant can have access to it. Does that kind of make sense? So the big amount is the endowment, the small amount is kind of the interest that's constantly being bled out. And that's how all the elements in the soil work. You're putting in a larger quantity to make sure that the smaller amount on a weekly basis is actually getting to the plant. So it's a really good analogy of how it actually works in the soil. So we're going to go over um, the big three plus one. Now, the reason that I'm going, I, I have this division is because if you're farming, and let's say, the, the best way to visualize this is let's say you have absolutely not absolutely nothing in your soil, but let's say everything's pretty low in your soil and you're wanting to build it up, okay? Which elements are going to give you the biggest bang for your buck? Which ones are what would be considered primary elements? Then there's secondary and then there's traces. And that's kind of what we're going through here, which is basically to say, look, if you don't have these elements, you're never going to get down the road. It's kind of like saying these, these, The big three plus one, and the reason I do it that way is because most people don't think about the plus one, the reason that it's like a car in some ways, you know, there's there's certain components like the plushy leather seats in the car, you know, it might make your ride nicer, you know, a nice grip for your handle, but, you know, ultimately you just need a steering wheel, four wheels, a way a motor, and, you know, that car will go down the road. So some of these elements are really, really critical. They're used in large amounts, and then as we go down, if you were to be prioritizing how you amended your soils, you would say, okay, I need these because if I don't get these, the other ones really aren't going to make a difference for me. Does that kind of make sense? So it's a stair-stepping of priority. Not all elements um, are as of high value um, or as, as is important. So we're going to go over the big three here. So most of you have heard of nitrogen, okay? So does anyone, give me some some things. What does nitrogen do? Any ideas? green leaves okay it's involved in promoting cell division which it's it's grows things grow you put nitrogen it's it's going to grow nitrogen for most crop productions if if a farmer is coming to me and saying hey i have a limited budget we're always going to budget for nitrogen first hands down because it is the one that is basically if it's not we're not good if it's not there in good enough quantities we're not going to make the crop okay it's involved in chlorophyll development which is bringing in photosynthesis it's involved in protein development it's a very critical amount and it's used in larger quantities than most other elements so nitrogen is the first primary element and you want to make sure that you have it now nitrogen is kind of one of those trickier elements because It's best addressed on a crop by crop basis. So for instance, lettuce uh, might require 150 pounds of nitrogen to the acre in order to get the crop. Tomatoes for a 60 ton crop might be somewhere between 300 and 450 pounds to the acre. So it's best addressed on a crop by crop basis, but you're putting that larger amount, but think it's that endowment, it's going to have that trickle down effect, okay? And these are overarching concepts and principles here, but nitrogen would be primary. The next one would be phosphorus or P. Phosphorus is secondary, and the reason why phosphorus is, is behind Nitrogen. I mean, you need both of them. These are the four big hitters, right? But phosphorus is what encourages root growth. And certain elements, like calcium, can only be taken up at the tip of the root. So you have to have continuous root growth or tip growth to have optimum, let's say, calcium uptake. But also, it builds the root system. So think of it this way. Um, Think about... um, who lives in a big city here, like Atlanta or, or Dallas or things like that, OK? Um, do you ever suffer from traffic, right? OK, so you know what I'm talking about. So phosphorus is like putting in more highways into the city. The bigger the highways and the larger they are, the faster the things can get in, the less traffic, the less hassle. So if you don't have good phosphorus level, like I said, 220 to 330 pounds to the acre, according to the test that we use. Um, you're not gonna build enough highway system to rapidly get the nutrients into, into the city, right? So that's why that one's the next. Okay, potassium would be then the next one. And as you can see, MPK, this is the base what you see on fertilizer packages, and that's why they're considered primary, because they're such big hitters, um, and they, they open the system up so that you can take all the smaller ones in. If you don't have them, you're not gonna go very far. Potassium is involved in Um, all sorts of things. It's involved in water utilization in the plant. It's involved in just the structural and cell walls, um, hardening up the cell walls. Um, It's it's an incredibly valuable element. And in cucumbers, let's say an average cucumber crop, a 60-ton cucumber crop will use, let's say, 450 pounds of nitrogen to the acre. Potassium might be up at 700 pounds as far as what the crop will take up from the soil if it's given the chance for that type of tonnage. So in some ways, potassium is more used in the plant than even nitrogen. So it's a heavy hitter. Okay, so the big three plus one. Any idea what the plus one is? Nope. Sulfur. Sulfur will be taken up as just high uh, quantities as phosphorus in the soil if you look on an element by element basis. And sulfur is our next primary element. Um, It's used for protein synthesis. It also increases nitrogen efficiency. Um, Very important uh, in the plant. And some growers uh, have had issues where they'll apply calcium and magnesium, let's say, to the soil, but their sulfur is really low, like at four pounds to the acre. And if you don't have sulfur at at least um, 100 pounds to the acre, um, calcium magnesium on most crops won't you won't see the benefit from it even if you get those levels up so that's why it's considered primary because um, calcium magnesium have a hard time functioning if sulfur is not in adequate quantities okay so sample uh, soil okay so uh, the next part is the middle three okay in the middle three as you would expect would be calcium would be next followed by magnesium and then followed by sodium. Now, calcium is used um, in calcium pectate, which is the glue that holds all the cells together in the plant. So, for instance, if you've ever had blossom end rot on tomatoes or things like that, yeah. the reason is is that you haven't the cells aren't being glued together sufficiently because you've run into a deficiency, and the the cal- there's not enough calcium getting in there to, to actually formulate and glue the cell walls together. So it's a weak zone and then the microbiology and the bacteria can break down that cell wall easier and get into the bottom of that tomato because it's the last forming part or the newest growing part on that, um, on that part of the plant. Um, magnesium is really important as well. Uh, Magnesium actually is important for phosphorus to get into the plant, so if you're having a phosphorus deficiency, it could be because you have a magnesium deficiency, or if you have a magnesium deficiency, it could be because you have a phosphorus deficiency. So they interplay with each other. Um, the, The interesting thing about these guys here especially, now potassium falls within this range. Calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. And we'll go into this a little bit later when I talk about testing. The only way to know if these are adequately available in the soil is to know your TCEC number. And the TEC, TCEC number is basically a measurement of the soil's ability to hold potassium, calcium, magnesium, and sodium. It's a number that you'll get on your test. And based on that number, will tell you how much of these you need. So we don't know what the size of the endowment needs to be for these elements and potassium if we don't know that number, okay? Because each element has its own endowment that it has to reach to be, to have enough interest coming out to supply the plant's needs. The other elements, there's pretty standard. Phosphorus will always be 220 to 330 pounds to the acre. Um, other elements like um, I guess sulfur is 100 to 300 pounds to the acre. But these guys are a little bit trickier because you have to know what's called your TCEC number to be able to know how to deal with these, okay? And for those that went to my class on, on uh, what was that? Tuesday, we'll, we'll remember, how many of you remember the, the talking and whispering into, you need to know your number, right? Um, that was driven home quite well, uh, hopefully, for all of you that went to that class okay so the five dwarfs boron iron manganese copper and zinc and I'll just briefly go over each of these Uh, boron is used um, actually uh, you get better calcium and magnesium efficiency into the plant if you have adequate boron Um, boron at levels um, above 1.5 parts per million in the soil uh, will help fight against, uh, fight against rust and fungus disease. It's a very important element. Um, it's also involved in pollination. So if your plants, like you have not getting good bloom set or fruit set, boron can sometimes be the culprit. Okay, so iron, uh, iron. Is, uh, is used in the plant. It's a part of, it's not involved with photosynthesis, but it is a precursor to be able to have successful photosynthesis. Um, really important element there. Um, manganese is, um, is involved in uh, lignin production, which is actually what holds up and structurally kind of makes the plant work. Um, it's also involved in, it, it helps with disease resistance. Um, The manganese will, if you have adequate levels, can actually make hydrogen peroxide that's pushed out the root zones, which is actually a defense mechanism for the plant, according to some uh, um, sources. Um, Copper in the plant Um, is used for cell wall strength and rigidity. So for instance, if you have an orchard and let's say you have a heavy fruit set load, okay? And your your, um, branch is starting to bend, okay? And sometimes it snaps and breaks. Usually if they snap and break instead of bend, is because usually you have a copper deficiency in the soil. It, copper is the element that allows for uh, cell wall elasticity so that when it bends, it doesn't break. It will actually come back. Obviously, there's a point where anything will break. But that's one of the key things. So cracking or radial cracking on tomatoes, um, it's really involved in cell wall strength of the plant. Um, so very important there. It's needed in small amounts. And you have to have a somewhere between 10 to 15 parts per million um, for, for adequate, that, that's your endowment, right, for that particular element. Uh, zinc is used in um, um, activating auxins in the plant. And auxins is, think of it this way the sun comes up in the morning, and your plant tilts this way to right capture the sun. And then as the sun goes over, the plant tracks with the sun. What causes that to take place is the hormone auxin, and zinc is what actually keeps that going. And it's involved in, in cell wall growth and expansion and stuff like that. So zinc also is, is very important. It was actually one of the first realized micronutrients that was ever realized that it, it was a limiting factor for plant growth. So those are the five dwarfs. okay. Now, this is just kind of an overview. So, if you're going to be prioritizing your amendments in the soil to say, "Man, I got to have these things," um, this is how you would want to to prioritize it. Now, it is interesting, uh, Mr. Harnish, you're. Okay, so Mr. Harnish is here. Um, His soil up in, um, in Canada, it has a super good phosphorus level. It's almost about 300, I think it was about 330, right on the upper levels of phosphorus content. But he was very, very low in potassium. But he was still having decent production. Because the phosphorus made such a good and vigorous root system that the traces amount of potassium that were there, he could still take up enough and maintain production. So even though the potassium levels weren't, let's say, ideal for his particular situation, he still was able to maintain decent growth. Um, but, but now that he's got his potassium levels up, he's, he says that it's done 50 ta- 100 times better? I don't know tremendous crop. So he's had good success, but that's that's the idea. If he wouldn't have had this ideal phosphorus level, the, by adding the potassium, it wouldn't have done a much difference because he wouldn't have had enough root mass to actually take it up. So t- sometimes you can have deficiencies in your plants just by virtue that you're not primarily you know you see what i'm saying you're not you're not getting your primaries primary so like like the things say, make the main things the main things right that's the that's the idea here and you'll have much better success now so how do we know how much money or nutrients we have in each endowment like that's the question right because then it's then at this point now we know the prime you know the how we need to structure this and which one's are primary, secondary, and trace. Now what we need to decide is how do we, how do we know what these numbers are? How, do we, how can we move in that right direction? How can we find out what's going on? And really the only way that we have to do that is, is soil testing. And so I want to go over here real quick how to take a proper soil test. And this is really important, okay? So how do we take a soil test? Now what we're recommending is that people take a six-inch sample okay because this is your aerobic zone and 80 percent from my understanding of all your nutrients are going to be taken up in this top zone and so this is where you want to sample and you want to sample at a consistent depth over your area consistent sampling depth is very important to getting consistent lab results According to Bill McKibben's book, The Art of Balancing Soils, which I recommend, um, it's a good read, especially if you already have some background in soil science. But even if not, you know, sometimes it's good to crack into these harder books and and try to understand and start asking questions. Probing one inch deeper, it can cause a 70 to 20 percent difference in lab results, which is significant when you're trying to balance the soil and know what your endowments contain for each particular element. Okay? Okay. So you can mess up your lab results if you don't uh, if you do improper sampling. So it's not just sampling at six inch depth, but it's consistently sampling at six inch depths over time um, because you want to have corresponding results every time you do it. Because so I have had a friend that called me up the other day. And he's like, hey, I want to send some soil tests off to a lab. Uh, you know, uh, how do I do that? And I said, well, well, first, how deep are you pulling your samples from? And he's like, "Oh, I pulled, pulled them from 12 inches down." And I say, "Do you have a way to turn 12 inches of soil over? I mean, that's going to take quite a bit of horsepower to, to do that." And he's like, "No, I only have about I can only turn about six inches." And I said, "Basically, what you're doing is that you're diluting your sample by 100 percent, you know, because you're the same volume that you're saying that you're going to amend. You're going beyond that." the full length and so you don't, you don't know what your, you don't know what those results are and then when you bring those results back it's diluted and then you're gonna apply all of that just to the top six inches you're gonna imbalance your system and it's not gonna work so well for you so doing consistent sampling depth is is really is really critical and I didn't even realize this um, until recently and I'm just like yeah yeah that's really important okay so probe size I use a half-inch probe, and these guys are not that expensive, and it's well worth the investment because it makes soil sampling so much easier. Okay, So let me go through a few points here. Okay, Soil samples are the mean average of the number of probes that are taken from the area of interest or from the area that you're sampling, which is pretty common sense. It's a subset of your area, right? Um, so here are some pointers that I want to point out. Smaller and more equals better when it comes to samples. So basically, um, you don't want to just pull a sample from one area. You want to pull enough samples from your entire area to give yourself a good representation of the area. So what we recommend is that a minimum of nine probes per area that you want with the maximum of, like, you don't want to do more than six acres okay, with one sample. So so nine probes equals one sample, and you don't want to test more than six acres at a time using this method. It, it gets beyond the scale of... So For mono, most of you guys here are not monocroppers or large-scale growers. So you'll never reach that six-acre max. But for those that might be doing it, I just wanted to mention that. That's about the max. And you want to make sure that you're testing within the same soil type as well. So it's not just saying, I can test any given six acres. It's also saying oh, is this a loam and then it transitions into a clay? I'm sure people, you know on your property that there's different soil types usually. So up on the hill might be a little different than down in the valley. It could be a sand in the valley than going to clay on the hills. You'd wanna test those separately if there's transitions because you wanna have a representative sample of a particular area where roughly speaking, you know that that soil's generally the same type, okay? And then if you take nine six inch probe samples using a half inch probe, It's going to be about a pound of soil. And that's about the amount that you want to send off to a laboratory. No reason to send off three or four pounds. It's not going to make make that much difference. And it's just going to be a lot more money to ship it into the laboratory. So a minimum of one pound, but I wouldn't wouldn't go over that. Okay. Eroded hillsides, where not to sample, okay? So here are places that you want to avoid. Eroded hillsides are low spots where nutrients could be swept into a low area and concentrate. If it's a large enough area though, you could sample it separately, right? Terraces ditch banks gravel roads that the minerals that make up the gravel could be leached to the side of the road you don't want to just go out and take a probe and then go 50 feet over away from it and take a probe and put those in the same sample bag um, you want to, to divide that up if you if you really want to, to, to sample along the road just make sure that you're're you're, you're, you're compositing similar areas animal droppings urine spots burn piles manure straw haystacks Um areas around the shed, barn, and or where buildings have formerly stood, lime, fertilizer, chemical spill areas, and fertilizer bands, areas of high concentration that could throw your sample off, and areas that you have treated differently. So for instance, if you're saying, oh this half of the garden, I'm going to try this type of fertilizer amendment, and this half I'm not, you don't want to come back in and test those together, you want to split each side and sample it separately. It's just kind of common sense stuff, so that you know that the results you're getting back are are what you're wanting. Okay, correct packaging. Um, I'm just going to point this out since this picture is up here. Um, I ID my samples. I have a coding system. We can't go into that, but I have a simple coding system that I use that identifies a spot on my farm, and then I put the date below that and I actually take pictures of my samples that I'm sending off to the lab to have a record on my end of when I sent it off because when the lab sends the samples back to you, they're going to date it when they actually ran the results, not when you necessarily sent the results. So I like to take pictures of my bags just to make sure gives me a a double check on the lab if, if I'm missing a sample and I'm like, hey, I sent it, and then they're like, no, we didn't get it, and at least I have a picture of it before I sent it and can see what happened. OK, so I'm going to go over how I take a soil sample here. I have one of these little feed scoops that you can kind of get at your local store. I use bagel bags from Walmart as the liner. And the reason for that is, is that I don't want, when, when, so I'll, I, can, I can take up to 10 soil samples, let's say, at a time. Um, I don't want every time I put a new... Like, let's say I was to just use this scoop thing and then put the samples in there and then pour the samples into the bag. Well, I wouldn't be able to clean out all the soil that was in in that scoop that I'd knocked the soil in beforehand. So by putting the liner in, I make sure that... I'm not contaminating any samples with each with the other sample. And then, because it's already in the bag, I just take my sample, I'll push it down six inches, pull up the probe, and then I'll knock it against the side of the, you know, I'll hold it like this. I'll hold it like, like this, and I'll knock the sample against the side until it knocks out into the bag by having a hard side, it kind of jolts the sample out of the out of the process. some soils are denser. You might need a, a screwdriver, a clean screwdriver, a chrome plated uh screw, screwdriver to, to knock the sample out. You don't you want to have as little, little contact with sample possible because sometimes you're going to be sweaty and the sodium would get into the sample and could elevate the results. It'll just that's how I, I take it, and then I, I pull the back out. Usually mark. Uh, bags before i go to the field so that then when i when i fetch the bag out of my back pocket i say, oh that's location 2c4 one through four and i put that go over that location pop it in then i pull the bag out and just do a knot on the top and it's ready for me to send them to the lab then i carry a five gallon bucket with me and i just plop the bags into the five gallon bucket that have the soil in them and then just carry it around until i'm done and then put it in the box and mail it off to the laboratory Okay, so some pointers. Use clean and new bags. Tape the top of the bag to prevent spilling if you're using like a Ziploc bag. If you're using the bagel bags, just by tying the knot in the top, it won't come undone. And I've sent samples off that way. And they're cheaper than Ziploc bags. Um, Make sure you ID the samples. Um, This is important so that the lab knows which sample is which. And when you get the results back, you know uh, where it goes to. And then use simple IDs Uh, Most labs limit the number of characters you can use. So this is kind of a funny story. When we were thinking about marking our fields out and stuff, mom's like, oh, let's call this field Colombia, and this one Argentina, and that one you know, Germany or whatnot. And I said, mom, no, 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 no. Too long, too long. It's not going to work. The labs won't take it. So you have to use simple characters. And we use four characters with a dash. And I can ID any bed on my farm using just four characters. and it just keeps things simple. OK, uh, questions on that before we move to, to the second little part here? Any questions on sampling, just for clarification? Yes, ma'am. So if you're dealing with a fresh area, it's the first time. Yeah, so it doesn't matter. Um, you can take probes. Actually, I would prefer, I, I set this up for a picture so that you could, you could see it this way. Preferably, I would like to see soils tested before they're disturbed okay now for instance let me give you an example let's say that you're coming in the spring and you're thinking about tilling up your garden this is a great question by the way Um, before you till it up take your probes and send them off to the lab then till up add your amendments when you get the results back let's say and then grow your crop and then at the end of the crop before uh, when, when you're ready to take it out that's when i would like to see another sample taken at least for our farm because you want the soil to settle down and compact a little bit more because here's the thing, if you till up your soil and it's really light and loose, then you're not getting the full effect of the six inch probe. It's, it's light and, and it's, it's a different, for lack of a better term, it's a different volumetric density. It's, it's lighter, you've, you put more air in there so there's less soil to volume, right? In a freshly tilled area, so what I would like to see is that when your crop's done and it's, it's had time to settle, maybe had a few rains on the field, it's settled back down and semi-compacted that would be the time when I would like to see another sample taken. But great, does that answer your question? Anything that's going to change or lighten the soil texture, I would like to see a sample taken before that activity happens. And then let the settle soil, s- let the soil settle out again before you take another test. Yes, sir. Okay, so I treat compost as any other amendment. I try to get an analysis, which you can use, you can uh, usually local extension services can show you where you can get what's called a uh, a manure analysis. Basically, they take the, the manure and they ash it or burn it in a in the fire and basically on the light that's flickering will tell them what, the, what nutrients are in it. I like to have a chemical analysis of, the fir- of any input that I'm doing, whether compost or otherwise. But I, what I would do is I would take a, a sample of the soil before you do the compost, take a, get a chemical analysis on the compost so you know what you're putting in there so that you know what you've done once you've added the compost. So I, yeah, I would separ- do it that separately. Okay, so if you're taking a sample from a fallow field that has vegetation on it, would you want to clear off that field of any vegetation before you sample? Or at least from the sampling spot. Or at least from the sampling spot. No. Um, when you send in a sample into a lab, they're going to run that sample through a two millimeter mesh. So any organic matter that's larger than a two millimeter mesh will be sifted out and taken off the top of the sample. So it won't affect the, the readings on that uh, because they're going to sieve it. Okay, so take two types of tests from different labs. Okay, so this is what I'm recommending from the research that I've been doing over the last few years. Um, these are the two laboratories that I use. This will also be on your handout. Uh, if anyone didn't get a handout, I don't know, um, maybe we ran out of handout. we ran out. Okay, um, see, me, see me afterwards and I'll try to get you a handout or find someone else with a handout and just take a picture of their handout and that would be a good way to go about it too. I use AL labs in Modesto, California for what's called a cation displacement test. This lab, this particular lab test is only good for finding out that T C E C number. It's the most reliable way to find out what that number is so that you know how to deal with calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. So you know how to build and allocate the correct endowment so that you have the correct interest coming out to keep your crops growing, okay? This is a very important test. There's reasons why I can't go into it, but this is this is I wouldn't I would at this point um, I would never recommend any small grower or or any small gardener that's wanting to become more serious about their gardening to not start with this test. This test sets a baseline for your soil and determines two uh, soil methods that you might use depending on how that number comes out, okay? now Perry agricultural laboratory in Bowling Green, Missouri. Um, This is the ammonium acetate test. So this tells me the number. This particular test just tells me the amount of calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium in relationship to this number. This is a completely different test. I also use them for testing things like phosphorus, sulfur, and all the traces, which would be the boron, iron, Uh, manganese, copper, and zinc, okay? This is the laboratory I use for that general test, okay, or or that that basic test. This test only needs to be taken once, and then your baseline's set and you know how to move forward. This test is going to be the test from this laboratory, is gonna be the test that you use for ongoing maintenance to find out how your endowments are doing. Does that track, okay? so that's how that works now we're going to go over let's see here so why two, Oh, i guess i just explained that okay why two different tests okay um so this is my recommendation for you if you're starting out first take a detailed t- uh, cation displacement test in the area of interest that you're working in make sure not to test across soil types um, now for instance this test uh, let's, say, let's say that you, you have the same soil type across your garden, but you've already fertilized one half and you haven't fertilized the other half, okay? This test will not be affected by that as long as the soil type is the same. This test will not be affected by the, the nutrients. Actually, this particular test, they flush all the nutrients out of the soil, completely wash the soil out, they reload it with a, uh, with a known element, and then they wash that out to find out what your TCC number is. So this, uh, this test will not be affected by what you've done fertility-wise. What it will be affected by is if you're trying to cross certain soil types with each other. So that's really important to make sure that you're within the same uh, soil. Uh, type an area and you can you can tell by going across and if you don't think you are you know just double check get your probe out and just go down and and look at the core samples and see if they're similar across your area that's a good way to determine if you're in the same uh, soil area okay and then the next thing I'm recommending is take uh, take a test Um, oh this these are the two methods I should mention them this is the SLAN approach and then this is the BCSR approach depending on what that TCEC number comes back out, this, this thing right here, TCEC number comes back at, will determine whether you use this approach or use this approach to manage those four elements that I talked about, which are calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium, okay? If you're between zero and eight, if your TCEC, let's say, says you're eight or below, which is mostly sandy soils, you're gonna be using this method. But if it's above that, you're going to be using this method, okay? For those four elements, those are the only four elements that are really tricky, um, because because they're so they're so dependent on how you deal with them based on that capacity to hold them in the soil. Okay, the lab determines it. The lab gives you the number, and then based on the number, you'll know which method to use. Okay. Um, and this is how it looks. So if you're going to be sending in to ANL Laboratories, it's pretty simple. Um, this is their sheet. It's, it's ANL Western Agricultural Laboratories. You should have that on your handout. Their contact information, address, and stuff. You can go onto their website and get a soil submission form. And this is what it looks like. And what you're going to do is you're going to, you're going to go to this other other analysis area, and then you're going to see how this. The, uh, we're going to zoom in on this. You're going to say, I want a CEC ammonium saturation test. I don't know if I have that on your thing, but this is the type of test that you're going to request from them. And then, see, they want to know how deep your soil is over here because based on the depth of the soil we we'll re- will de- determine because that number is based on the volume of soil that you're actually testing, so they want to know um, to give you the correct number. So they'll ask you that you're taking 6-inch samples. So I would put 6 inches there so that they know what they're testing against, OK? Now, um, now the basic test that we take from Perry Laboratories, you're going to request the basic tests from them. And then you're going to add in the check marks boron, iron, manganese, copper, and zinc. You're going to request those as additional tests. And then under the other test, and we're going to show you this, you're going to specify for sodium, a Bray P2 test, which is for phosphorus, and then a water pH. Um, and this test runs for about $28 um, at, at Perry's. And this is what it looks like. Um, obviously, in their, in their sheet, they have places. I, I just cropped it. They have places under here where you can fill out for other samples. So, you can put like eight or ten samples on a sheet double sided. So, you're going to say uh, basic test with sulfur, okay? And then you're going to check boron, iron, manganese, copper, zinc. And then in the other bases, it says please specify. You're going to put sodium, Bray P2, and water pH in that area. And that will give you all the raw data you need to know where your numbers are. Now, um, I will. I'm putting uh, Whitmar McConnell's contact information up here with phone number. It's also on your handout. But if you don't know what to do with the raw data, it's really worth the investment to work with someone who does. And if you take those tests and request those extra analysis, he will have the raw data in hand to be able to give you a correct correct recommendation. So uh, Whitmar, I've been using him. And I don't get any commission off this um, because I actually pay him. uh, I've been working with Whitmar for about the last four to five years. It's been a good, huge learning curve for me. But um, anyways, there's his contact information and his email address. And I would suggest emailing him before you just send the samples in um, so he knows, you know, that you're going to send it to him. Then the labs will email those back to you and you would just forward them to his email address. Um, I think uh, he he charges like uh, $20 um, to write the recommendations for a a soil analysis. If you provide him that TCEC number, that will help him write the soil analysis better. And it gives you a foundational baseline to go off of for future management of those calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. So that's the critical critical part there. And so it's not just important for us to know this, but I feel like Adventism has a great opportunity to be a leader on the world stage in soil science and to help make a difference. Because it's not just about producing more food, it's about producing food that actually has true nutritional qualities in it. And so this is a big deal, and a lot of the math and science that goes behind these calculations were directly... studied and, and researched by a guy by the name of William Albrecht, he was the uh, chair of the soil science at the University of Missouri, and his specific objective was not just to increase yield for growers, but how those, but how adding nutrients and balancing the soil, how it affected human health. That was his objective, which is not the objective of, of, of the pharmaceutical companies in the agribusiness today. It's pretty much all about production. So um, anyways, uh, it, It's a great book and it's a good thing to get started, but that is Simple Soil Science in a Nutshell to get started. Hopefully you can know where to go from here, and um, uh, questions? Anyone have questions? Yes. Um, Organic matter is mentioned on the test um, that that I'm recommending as a default. Here's the thing with organic matter, okay? When plants um, are running at high efficiency and we get the mineral balance load right, Plants will actually, any plant can actually add organic matter to the soil by fixating carbon from the air. But the plant has to run at very high efficiencies, which means that you have to take care of your endowments. Um, there's a guy by the name of um, oh, what's his name? His last name's Kemp. He works with a company called Advancing EcoAG. I can't remember his first name. I want to say it's John, John Kemp, yeah. And he grew strawberry plants out in California that had very, very low organic matter in the soil, like below 1%. And after a year of doing stuff like this and increasing and making sure that plants run at their highest efficiency, they were able to go from like 1% to 3% organic matter just in one growing season. And if you know how difficult it can be to build organic matter, I mean, that's the ideal way of building organic matter, to get your plants to high efficiency so that they sequester carbon from the air and actually put it into the root zones of the plants to feed the microbiological activity. So he's actually shown that to be the case, and that's, that's the way I would go after it. Now, this is not discounting adding compost to the soil. There are certain places and times where compost can be a huge benefit. We're actually using it on, on our farms. Um, but like I said before, Compost is bringing things into your system and you need to treat it like any other fertilizer. It's best to take an analysis so you know what you're putting on so that when you do take tests, you can start dealing from cause to effect. If you just put it on and you think that compost is all the same or whatnot, you won't know what you actually did. And so it's all about tracking the numbers and knowing what you did. Because if you know what you did, you can repeat what you did and we can all benefit from it. Oh, oh, I I should mention that. So, yeah, here's another thing with compost. I had a friend um, built a really nice hoop house, um, and he went over and got some compost from a neighbor, and he put it on his field, in his greenhouse there, planted his tomato plants, and about two weeks later, all his tomato plants started dying. And what had happened is, here's an yeah, that's a very important thing. So you really need to know where your compost is coming from, what the feedstock that's being used to create that compost is, because some people will pull, uh, like, horse manure, and horses are usually fed Bermuda grass. And Bermuda grass is commonly sprayed with a, a herbicide called 2,4-D, or grazon, or picloram, and that has about a five-year half-life, or five-year of uh, residual, so if, if the if the animal eats it, they poop it out, and then they make compost from that. You put that on your soil unawares. I know several growers that have ruined for five years their growing area because they weren't careful about what was in their compost. So that's a really good point. I would actually, if you. Were to get a compost and you just wanted to test it, take some like bean plants or tomato plant and plant it in a pot with that compost before you put it on your soil. If the plant survives and does well, then it's probably you can use it. But if it dies, then (laughs) don't touch it. Um, You had a a question. Yeah, she asked, my probe is longer than six inches. I actually have it, I took a little file and actually filed a mark on my probe so I know that I don't go beyond six inches. It's about right here. Like these probes are used for all sorts of things, right? Not just agriculture. So they make them a a standard size usually. So, because some people might want to go a lot deeper to see what's going on. Yes, ma'am. So the question was do I use a shovel to dig out before then put the probe in? No. I push the probe right into the profile as it is. Yeah. Yes, sir. So she's asking about like what's the lab turnaround time and then. how fast can you get the samples on after you get the lab results type of thing? Yeah, some of that is user related. Yeah. Do the amendments need to sit for a couple days or a couple weeks? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the fa- uh, first part of that question, as far as lab turnaround time, um, if you send it directly into the lab, you can get it turned around within eight to nine days, Okay, which is pretty quick. Um, and I I do my own calculations for my soil now. So when I get those lab results back, um, you can get it in, in a CSV file, which is kind of like a universal spreadsheet. And if you make a spreadsheet, you can just copy and paste the the data. Um, I um, I sometimes, most of the time, I manually input it into my spreadsheet, and then within a few seconds, I can get a result for what to do for my farm. So it's a pretty quick turnaround time. Um, as far as now, the, the, there is a bit of, a, of debate on this um, as far as how long you should let the, the fertilizer sit. Some people say two weeks before you plant. Um, I'm constantly rotating crops. I don't always have that luxury. I would rather put it on and get it working and plant my crop in than to not have it in there and then to run out down the road. That would be my recommendation. And in a lot of these amendments, if you get a recommendation, they're not going to tell you to put on more fertilizer than the soil could handle. That would cause problems. So there would be, they put limitations on that. So I would say you'd be pretty good applying it at any time. You don't want to apply it. So I I made a mistake one year. i said, oh, I'll just over broadcast this because my crops are already in the ground and I, I want to get it on there. A lot of these fertilizers are fairly concentrated and fairly dry, and you'll ruin your plant leaves. And you you want to do it before you plant anything down or you can get some problems. Let me take some more from the back here real quick. Yes, sir. So the question was, is do I have a hard time getting my sample out of the probe if it's muddy? Um, Yeah, uh, that can be a problem. I wouldn't say that that would be a reason that you shouldn't probe. You just got to get a screwdriver. And actually, let me go back to this. There's different probe styles that you can purchase. I'm probably going to be transitioning to this particular probe style this one right here, because as you can see, it's got a lock on it, so that when you push it in, you can get your probe, but then you can slide it apart, and then you can slide it out there. So there's different probe styles that you can use depending on, on the circumstances. This is like a $69 probe. Um, so, but um, for our farm, we test fairly intensively, and so to, um, to, to buy a probe, it's, it's like buying a good rake. You know, from Johnny's or something. You're going to be spending quality, but here's the thing: for me, it's all about making it easier. And because you know, I I'm I'm kind of lazy sometimes. I don't feel like going out and taking my samples. I know I should, but. I don't feel like doing it. You want to try to reduce the barriers that are going to influence you whether you take it or not. So having a good probe can make your sampling a lot quicker. Probably higher likelihood that you're actually going to take it. Um, and that's an important, uh, po- important factor. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so we are, we, are, we are testing. We are going to be testing. And I, I've actually done a lot more of this. I took about 40 samples last year, this last growing season. Um, here's the thing. Um most, most people will test once a year, okay? The biggest learning that I've ever made with, it, with my soil is inner year testing. So let me give you a few examples. A um, few years ago, back at our old farm, I was doing this once a year testing thing. And my crops would grow really well for about a month, and then they would just start really croaking on me. And it was just like, man, what's going on? I don't think the soil balancing system's working. La, 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 you know, all this kind of stuff. And it was really frustrating. So once, year, I just got so fed up, I'm like, you know, I'm just going to spend the money and take another sample. And I found that my pH in my soil had gone from a 6.4, which is, you want to be between 6.3 and 6.5, let's say. 6.4 had gone up to a 7.2. And if any of you know how pH works, it's a logarithmic scale, which means that from going to a 6.4 to a 7.2 is, let's see here, that's an eight times difference of concentration of hydrogen in the soil. So it's a huge shift when it comes to a soil mass. And so it was like, where, where did this come from? I haven't been adding anything. Why is this happening? You know? And it was a fairly heavy soil, which means it had more buffer capacity. So it shouldn't have shifted that easily that quickly. Come to find out. Our water was incredibly hard. i never considered water as a part of, of the soil balancing system. And basically, our water was pushing the pH up in our soil. When you get above seven, you start locking down availability of phosphorus, you start losing um, iron, copper, manganese efficiency. It's, it, it starts to precipitate out of the soil and it's no longer available. And so, But I would have never known that unless I took an intermediate testing during the year because what would happen is at the end of the year I would stop growing stop irrigating the winter rains would come which would push the ph back down and then when I took a soil sample in the spring again it looked fine and so you really have to and that's another thing that I didn't mention here but there's there's this it's this and the people that went to my class know about this it's called the golden puzzle Um, Soil chemistry and soil science is a part of that puzzle, but so is microbiology. So is, uh, which kind of goes to, uh, well, anyways, uh, the the uh, point made earlier is, you know, why don't I mention organic matter? A lot of that comes to microbiology, which is another thing. Uh, Water chemistry, what water are you putting on your soil? Um, Some situations, the water is so extremely bad that you cannot balance the soil by adding minerals if you don't take care of your water first. So it's something important to keep into consideration. You're you're trying to track all your inputs and all your outputs. Um, And water is the biggest input. Water, The soil will become what the water is, not the other way around. And so if you're dealing with a bad water source, um, you can can be trying to balance your soil in the way that we're recommending here, but you'll never make it because your water is constantly whacking you out. So... um, (laughs) See, it was, we were like simple soil science and it's like, you know, there's a lot more to this, so we can go into that. So, um, most laboratories, agricultural laboratories, will take what's called an irrigation suitability test. You can write that down. Any laboratory can do it, it's not like soil testing where I'd want to use a particular laboratory. Um, And I've done comparisons between laboratory and that's why I've set on the two that I'm recommending based on research that I've done. Um, but water testing, it's, it's standard. It's more like bench chemistry. There's not going to be huge variances between the laboratories you use. So get an irrigation suitability test. And what you'll find in that irrigation suitability test will be the hardness of the water. Uh, things like SAR, which would be sodium absorption ratio. So like for instance, especially out west where they have a lot of sodium in the water. If sodium is the dominant cation in that water, or the dominant element, it can mess you up so fast your hair will curl. I mean, it's, it can be really, really bad and it will take a lot of remedial effort. Actually, we, I recommend that anyone that buys a farm It's important that you test your soil to know chemically and chemistry and capacity wise where you are. But I I would try to avoid buying a farm if I didn't know how much water I have and the quality of that water. And you wanna test your water during the driest time of the year. So usually for us here in the Northern Hemisphere, it's gonna be August and September. You don't wanna test in the spring when you all got those nice spring rains and stuff and your water is diluted. You wanna test at the worst time of the year when you have the worst water quality. Um, And it's the driest and and all that kind of stuff. This media was brought to you by AudioVerse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about AudioVerse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.